Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Stuart DeVille is a game designer, graphic designer, and animator. He is the founder of independent game studio Zap Pop Pow and Game Dev London, a community of games developers and host of the Game Dev London podcast, which aims to support the UK games industry with knowledge and stories from those at its core. He is a creative leader whose vast artistic knowledge, acquired over more than 20 years, has seen him design editorial layouts for a magazine, teach graffiti workshops, be the creative art director for a video production company, collaborate in fine art projects reaching Berlin, Paris and London. He's been a book illustrator, set designer and digital marketeer, creating motion graphics and idents for digital marketing and branding companies such as Mastercard, the O2 Music Awards and End of the World Live events. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Stuart DeVille, welcome to the Astrology Podcast. Delighted to have you as my guest and uh, appreciate you taking the time out. As always with uh, Astrology Conversations, I'd like to start at the beginning. So tell me, where where did you grow up and uh, and what was childhood like for you? Wow, that's quite far back, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I grew up in a little town that it turns out more people know than I realised called Watford. Every, every time I meet someone, I'm like, they're like, where are you from? I'm like, oh, you're not, you won't have heard, you won't have heard of it. It's, it's Watford. They're like, oh yeah, no, the football. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe you do know. <laughs> or Harry Potter world, I guess these days. Yeah, there is that too. There's loads of stuff going on now, the redevelopment. But yeah, so that's where I started. <laughs> that's where I was born, born in Watford General. And, and, and growing up, big, big family, brothers, sisters, that's how did, how um, was no. So my mum was a single parent to two boys, me and my brother. I was the angel child, let's put it that way. So yeah, I was the one who just kept my head down, did all did all what I was supposed to do, went to school and I wouldn't say I was particularly great at school, but you know, I tried to keep out of trouble as much as as much as any kid can. And and kind of heroes growing up, who were the metaphorically or otherwise the posters mm. on the wall? Who did you look up to? Who did you aspire to be? I don't know if I particularly I, I kind of had like Robin Williams is the I consider him to be my like movie star TV father because like anything that he did I absorbed I loved his comedy and just every, everything that you thought would be like a, a good person to be in the world that's kind of one of the key ones I guess I, I looked up to but outside of that I don't really know. <laughs> where, where would that first have stemmed from? Were you uh, Morecambe Indy, I guess, would have been, that been the Morecambe first thing Indy, on, yeah. on TV that you would have yeah. you would have experienced Robin Williams? Yeah, Mork Colin Olsen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, being carbon dated. But yeah, um, literally, that uh, I think I grew up, that was the first thing I remember of Robin Williams. And then like, literally anything that I ever heard that he was going to be in, any movies that were down in the theatre, I'd go and see it. I think I've pretty much seen everything he's ever been in. I'm only, I'm very rarely surprised then when people are like, oh, have you seen this thing? It's got Robin Williams in it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> well, I think it, I'm ill-qualified, but clearly it's well-documented as to his 
you know, the eclectic mix of talent, if you like, that he was able to evidence consistently throughout his throughout his career. A fabulously mm. talented guy. So I'm not surprised that he should have he should have proven such a a source of inspiration as he would have done for and continues to do for so many. Which brings me on to my next question. You uh, back to that that word eclectic, but I'd, I'd acknowledge that you have an eclectic mix of, of of hugely creative experiences from a a career perspective. But at what point, as you reflect back to to your chi- childhood, did you first recall having discovered that creative flair? I used to have this like little th- thing in my bio that was. Um... I remember being very, very young and my mum putting like pens and pencils in my hand. And the first thing I did was create like a, a mural all over the, the, the living room wall. And that was kind of, much to her dismay, but like that, that was kind of like, so it's almost like I was born with a pen and pencil in my hand. I always had that fascination with it, how to make my mark, I guess. And and how did that manifest through school? You know, were you fine? Because I get again, we'll come on to career in a, at a later date. Mm. But there's a mix not only in terms of of that kind of creative element as an illustrator or graphic design or creating, but actually theatre. And you come back to Robin Williams. There's a there's a theatre thread through uh, some of the background that I've read as to the things that you've done. What, what how did your sort of creative experiences play out through school days? I think, especially when I was young, it it wasn't clear to me that that was a career path. Whenever I whenever I would ever speak about you know these dreamy dreams I had of being an artist, and I always had those classic dreamy dreams of being an artist, like living in Paris, looking out on my balcony, painting canvases and stuff. But um, everyone was always like, "Oh no, you're gonna have to get a real job like that. You can't. Artists isn't a, it's not a job." And I think even as far as like going to a careers advisor. And I was saying, oh, I want a, a career in art. And they were like, okay, well, let's look at what other options you might have open to you. You know, you don't just want to dive into that. And I was like, no, that is, that is kind of, that's exactly what I want to be doing. So it, it kind of mostly led to me doing it like I'd always be scribbling on the back of my school books and stuff, like um, doodling in class when I should have been doing maths or whatever it was. But any any class, well, I actually did have art classes, but any any class where there was anything creative, uh, any creative input that's where I was doing best in those lessons um, even like the design technology classes where we had to I think the first thing we were doing was we were all designing these like boxes to put stuff in and I created a box that looked like it was an overflowing paint tub instead of it being like a basic box with a hinge and stuff I'd al- I was already going into like no this could be more creative than that but yeah I think I left school feeling like um, an art career wasn't something that people did even though really the evidence was all around me right there's movies there's people making movies uh, even animated movies like but it just seemed to me that maybe that was something that happened over there in america where like Walt disney was and, and i didn't really see a way of me getting there and finding a way into it although i did eventually find my way to art college but yeah i didn't really it kind of was just always this thing i thought it would be in the it's never going to be my main thing. I'm always going to have to have it as like the thing that I love doing. Was there anyone that was able to provide any positive guidance through that time? You know, you hear stories of perhaps there was there was that one standout teacher or family member or whoever it might have been that was able to provide you with the impetus, the inspiration, the confidence to try and pursue uh, your, your dreams, if you like, if, from an artistic perspective. It's, it, it does strike me. I mean, if, you know, I can remember similar 
I, I mean, I have no artistic flair, so I should qualify my next question with that statement. But nonetheless, I remember similar sort of conversations with friends and peers at my own school who were very talented from an artistic perspective, but it was just kind of one of those things that you did. And I felt that kind of, you know, for, for me growing up, it was almost like there were certain careers that you were sort of encouraged and funneled to sort of go down a route of if you excelled in a particular area, but art was never one of them. It was just, you know, it was very, which seems incredibly unfair when, you know, particularly here in the UK, we have a burgeoning creative industry that is worth millions, hundreds, of, if not billions to the UK economy. So in terms of figures of inspiration, was there somebody who was able to kind of just point you in the right direction or t send you down a path that you thought, you know what, that's the place I want to go? I always had the support of my mum. My mum was always always said to me, you know, as long as you're happy, I don't I don't care what you're doing. If that's what makes you happy, if that's what you want to do, if that's what you want to pursue. So yeah, I always had that support. I never really had anyone. I, I had quite the opposite. Even when I went to art college, I had a tutor who didn't like how. What would you say? I I, <laughs> I guess I was an over performer. Really, I was always doing the work that was required, but doing extra. And he didn't like that I was doing extra. He was always saying, you know, in the industry, because I think he kind of thought that I might end up in doing marketing or something. We're doing the visuals for marketing and stuff. And he, and he was like, in, in the industry, you're not going to get, um, you're not going to be able to just do whatever you want. You're going to have to stick to the, this is what you have to do, the, the parameters of the project, right? And I would always do what he'd asked me to do. I would then, and I learned. I later learned that that's what clients love. You go, here's the thing that you wanted me to do, but I also had this idea, and then you try and sell them on your idea, right? He was having none of that, and I think that I've heard rumours that you know he he kind of burnt out in his art career, so it comes under the the classic banner of those who can do and those who can't teach. But I don't believe that to be true. But I think that there are some people <laughs> where that's definitely the case. Um, but obviously, he shouldn't have been teaching either. So yeah, I had I had clashes with him, like um, even to the point where I didn't quite finish art college in, in the way that everyone else did. Um, we had this massive fight towards the end of it. And I just said to my mom, I'm not going back in there. I'm not having another day with this guy. I just need to go do it myself. And so that's what I did. I was going to ask you actually what you might have, what you learned from that experience, but from what you've described, it, if nothing else, it gave you the, it poured fuel on the on the fire to go and to seize the initiative and, and, and find your own way. Yeah, I think in some cases you can be quite lucky with, with stuff like that. You could, because you could just blindly follow a path, you know, you go through school and you try and get the grades that you need for the next step and then you go to college and you fill in that blank and then maybe even go to university. And I think quite a few people, even friends of mine, have like they've gone through the whole process, they get to the end of uni and they're like, this isn't what I want to do. <laughs> I really wish I had have had something shake me up at some point. I mean, because some of them end up doing what they want to do anyway, but like it would have been an easier transition had they have sort of like had these little shakeups. So I kind of consider myself quite lucky that I didn't just blindly follow the path. And, I've, and because I always had this like immense drive, I think, yeah, I don't think I would have been able to just snugly fit into someone else's dream. I always kind of needed to be making my own dreams come true. And, and that drive to which you refer, where does that come from? God knows. <laughs> I just, I think every time I, well, it, it probably comes from actually, if I think about it hard enough, 
I was the good one at home, right? I was the good boy. My brother was a little bit like not so much the good boy. And I always thrived on that praise of being the one who was doing the right thing, doing well. And that kind of transferred over even when I went in, into into the workplace and started working in whatever job it was. I liked being like, oh, yeah, you can rely on him. He's always the hardest working. He'll, he'll always get his job done. And even like in my early career, out the, the jobs that I did that weren't art or creative related, I always did really well. I always went up the ladder fairly quickly, um, normally getting into like managerial positions. But at the same time, that because it wasn't a creative job, I very quickly after like a year or two was like, I need to get out of here. I need to go work somewhere else. See, I guess it, I guess it just comes from this pleasure from knowing that I'm being the, or being the best at or being successful at whatever it is I want to be doing. And I was fascinated to read that you'd worked as a freelance graffiti artist and, and an illustrator producing visuals for, for skate parks and shop fronts. And even I think I'm right in saying you designed a tattoo parlor and or signed for a tattoo bar and then started designing tattoos yourself. That, that I was going to say, it sounds somewhat cliche based on the analogy I just drawn, but putting that stamp on things. But that's, how did that come about? That that sort of freelance uh, graffiti artistic, where, where was, what was the story behind that? I think I just one day was like, well, because I was always switching mediums anyway, I always went from like, I, I was drawing things. I was always drawing, trying to draw my own comics and then trying to figure out how best to color them and looking at different art styles and stuff. And then realizing as you do that graffiti is out there in the world and thinking, well, how do they do that? And then it, I'm not entirely sure whether we had, whether I was buying them online initially, but I did end up buying them online. But I was buying, I found somewhere where I could buy spray paint cans, essentially. And from that point on, I became obsessed with like this new creative medium and very quickly became, I guess, fairly proficient at it. And then I realized that that meant that because when it comes to like shop fronts and things like that, and it just so happens I was doing mostly stuff within a marketplace as in like, you know, market stalls and stuff. And they had their own little cordoned off areas of uh, boarded up panels. Um, and this particular tattoo studio, he wanted to have all of his outsides decorated. Not obviously, it, if you go to, I guess, what you would have called a professional outfit, where they would have done some kind of massive sticker for it or something, or had some kind of printing thing involved, it would have cost him in like the thousands, essentially. Whereas I came along and I was like, well, I could do it for like easily half that cost all you need to do is pay me for my time and pay me for the spray paint and then I came up with all the design for it so that's kind of how that started and then from there I, I became known locally as the guy that did that so I got commissioned to do a mural on the side of a building for a coffee shop and then I got invited to do to teach it at um at the Watford Girls School so I did a, a class there as well but although that ended up being more I did more fine art stuff with them just because the scope of the project changed when I started talking about the price of spray paints and how many students they've got and <laughs> you know how, how that, that became a different project. But yeah, so I became known for that kind of stuff. And then I heard about another like like junior outreach program, it kind of is, where you go to these places, but there's lots of kids who are disadvantaged kids. And obviously I felt like I was one of those, I had been one of those kids. And that if there had been someone like me around to have taught me, hey, you know what, you can you can do this stuff. Like I, I, and I can show you how to do it. Um, so I kind of pulled together this tiny micro curriculum, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> um, and I taught that for I don't, like a good few months. So yeah, that's kind of how that came around. 
And and you sold your illustration canvases, I understand, on your own market stall. Is that right? You, um, I, I yeah, guess, what, what good, did you learn from days. that experience? Yeah. What did you learn from that experience? I think quite a few things, I guess. Like one, I found that I was able to really be myself on, on when I was, had my market stall because I had my market stall, I had my canvases out and I was like creating art live essentially. Um, and people were able to come along and talk to me about it. And, and then I'd be like, oh, you like this one? You should definitely buy this one. And I kind of, you know, got really good at the the sales banter side of it. Also got pretty good at managing my own finances to a certain extent. You never get perfect at it, do you? But <laughs> certainly got used to that whole exchange of things. And, you know, I think that that just kind of emboldened me a little bit further. I was like, I really can just do this on my own. I don't need to go do it for anyone else. And yeah, the luxury the luxury of just sit, sitting on a market stall all day, doing what you love, talking to people about the thing that you love and then selling them the thing that you love. Yeah, good days. <laughs> Fantastic. So you've, as an art director, you've created stage sets for themed events such as Star Wars and Pirates of the Caribbean. You've created storyboards and motion graphics and even worked as an illustrator on a book, uh, Suits, Ties and Miserable Lies, that's, that, that's now found in the Institute of Contemporary Art. So, mm-hmm. and you mentioned you've worked as a, as a teacher, you've the incredible range of creative experiences of your own and then sharing those experiences with other people. Fascinates me how you think that the experiences that you enjoyed early in your career have equipped you to pursue a career in the games industry. That, uh, that almost happened by mistake, really, because... I discovered uh, the 3D uh, open source 3D rendering software Blender, and I was like, "Oh, creating stuff in 3D—that's cool. I could definitely try my hand at that." And again, as as I always have done, I was like, once I was in, I was absorbed in it. Um, watched as many YouTube t- tutorials as I could, became really proficient fairly quickly. And then I kind of had this little daydream thought that, well, maybe because I really like doing the character art. And I don't, that, has, that has always been with me as far back as like when I was creating my own comics. So I thought I could be a characterized in a AAA studio because at the time, I, you know, AAA seemed to be the place that every artist wants to be. And also within, so within Blender, I learned that I could, yeah, I could model the characters, I could texture the characters, I could an, uh, rig and animate the characters um, so I could make my own animations. At the time, there was a, a game engine within there and I thought, oh, this is amazing. I can actually make my own game within it. And it once I started applying for jobs, and I realized that every AAA job, or at least seemingly every AAA job, they were saying, well, you need to be able to demonstrate your qualifications. I didn't have qualifications myself taught. But that kind of gets overlooked as long as you've worked within the industry and you've worked in the industry for three years or you've worked on three ship titles. And I just thought, well, the only thing that I, the only way that I'm going to get on that ladder, as it were, is if I use Blender to make my own game, and then I've, I've at least got that experience of working and, and making and having those ship titles. I spent a good year banging my head against the wall trying to make a game, because although uh, creatively I seem to be able to do anything I want, when it comes to things like programming and understanding programming language and being able to fix programming problems when you come across them, that is just it's a whole other language to me. And, you know, they actually call it programming languages. So <laughs> it makes sense, right? So I started talking to like everyone that I knew about it, that, I, that this is what I was doing, that I was making a game. And so when it came to a point of I was struggling really hard and I was having those conversations, people were like, oh, you know who you should speak to? 
And it just so happened that uh, my friend Peter, who I hadn't been in close contact with for like quite some time, I was actually uh, talking to his brother down the pub. Um, and he said, yeah, you should talk to Peter because he's been making mobile games. He's like a, and he is a genius. He's an absolute genius when it comes to programming and super switched on smart guy. But his brother said, the problem is like his games are really fun. They're really cool, but they don't look very good because Peter's not an artist. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> so that, that kind of clicked and we started working on a project together. Um, and I thought, yeah, this is, this is going to be how I get in. There's, there's a lot of like, stuff that happened over the next two years. We went from making a, a, a project that was way too big to making mobile a mobile game. We released that mobile game. And then I thought, you know what? Why am I bashing my head against the wall doing all of this hard work to try and work for someone else when everything that my life has ever taught me is that I can do it myself? And from my from other experiences I've had throughout my career of like managing creative teams and things, I just thought I can definitely, this is definitely something I can do. Um, so I that's what I did. I started to uh, reach out within the, a network that I had started to, I guess there's a step before that, right? So there's this uh, game dev lunch meetup that I was going to every month because I'd already got interested in game development. And I realized that within that network, I was able to reach out to other people who are in a similar situation to me with different skill sets. And that's how I started to form my team. And so within about two months, I went from it being two people to 17. And yeah, that's kind of how that whole thing started. <laughs> And this is a sapbot power, the, the business that, yeah. you now, that you now run. So do you tell me, go, if we go back to the idea of developing, a, creating a game, first and foremost, thinking that process through, you'd done storyboarding, as I understood it, mm-hmm. at earlier stage in your career. Is it, is it a yeah. similar type of process? Do you, you know, preaching to the, uh, to the unconverted here and a very illiterate when it comes to understanding how you develop a game, where do you yeah. start? What's the process? For me, I mean, it's, it's not really similar. I mean, the the point at which it becomes similar really is when you want to do uh, when you get to the point of doing trailers or the animated cutscenes, things like that. That's when my storyboarding skills might come in more useful than they than they currently do. But it actually turns out that it was a steep learning curve working out uh, a workflow pipeline. And in the beginning, there wasn't really one. It was kind of like I'd done enough myself that I understood all of the roles independently so that I could manage those roles independently. I could say to someone, oh, I think this is going to take you this long, which means I can plan, you know, I, I could plan the project based on those things. But when it came to like how I connect those people and help them work together, that's when I had the steepest learning curve, I, th- I think. Because although I had managed creative teams before, I hadn't managed a creative team where the disciplines were uh, so vast because programmers and artists tend to speak very different languages. And even with personality types, you tend to find programmers are a lot more like insular or you get these kind of like rock star personalities who feel like I'm the one who makes everything work, essentially. So like someone else's opinion might not be valid to them because they're like, no, I know what I'm doing. I definitely know what I'm doing. Whereas artists are, tend to be a lot more like, oh yeah, the, whatever you want, I can I can do that. I I can creatively extend that way or this way, and but they get frustrated when they come up against people who are who won't quite listen to their ideas. Um, so I had to do a lot of well, in some cases I had to do a lot of work in order to help them communicate, and in other cases I had to realize that I had to get out of their way and let them figure it out. So yeah, that's kind of the hardest part of that whole managing. Uh, creative team like this the thing that struck me as i as i looked at 
you know, if you look at, we, we, we touched on this briefly off air, but in terms of the, you know, the size and scale of the gaming market, uh, 2020 revenue from worldwide PC gaming was estimated at 37 billion US dollars. Mobile gaming generated uh, 77 billion US. I mean, it's a huge space, but I would imagine dominated by sizable, significant sizable players. And then the market is made up of series of independents as well. You know, it's a, it's a very disjointed space, I would imagine. A bit like, you know, the, the difference between an independent filmmaker and Amazon creating their own studios. I mean, the, the differences are vast. I mean, is, is it, in terms of the challenges that you might face, how would you, how do you get a, an independent developer off the ground? Good question. <laughs> For me, it was just a case of, I'm not going to stop doing it until it's done what I want it to do. So in, in my case, it's, I want, I've got five games that I want made uh, within this, the series of the world universe that I've created. We have planned out five games. And so I will just keep trucking and do whatever it is I need to do to get that done. I will speak to whoever I need to speak to. I will network with whoever I need to network with. But I think um, hmm, it's a tough one. I mean, like you say, there is a lot of money in the space that money isn't accessible to everyone within the space. I think the big players get fairly easy access to that money. I think indie studios, I would, probably even like five, ten years ago, it was probably easier for indie studios to get hold of money, especially if you had people who had worked within the industry who had then started their own studio. But I think as time has gone by, people who were handing out that money in that space have realised that having a rock star team doesn't guarantee you a successful product and actually what you need is someone within that team who has a good business sense which is kind of harder to prove out unless they've already done it so yeah getting getting hold of money is always especially as an indie actually is always going to be a struggle but there's lots of support out there how do you go about getting the the, the resources you would need so these days if you're an indie studio of any, of any size four to 20 people whatever it is um i would say the first thing you need to do is get it used to be that you could go to a publisher with a prototype, and in some cases you can still do that, especially if you can prove your team did it really efficiently and effectively and like it makes sense for them financially if they're like, okay, so it's not going to cost us too much money for you to get this to market and then you know we can play games with numbers there. But for the most part, I would say you would need a playable demo. So essentially you've got the game there, but you're going to make more of that game. And then you would take that to publishers and investors and say, look, this is the cool thing I want to make. And then there's other avenues because you don't even have to do that, right? You can go to crowdfunders, crowdfunding websites, and you can try and do it off your own back and garner interest. I think the only real difference between doing it that way and going through with a publisher is that the publisher takes a gambit uh, and has that extra marketing power. Whereas if you try and do it on your own with a Kickstarter, you need to do all of that marketing. You need to let people know that, that Kickstarter exists. You need to create that hype and you need to reach out to influencers who like live stream or twitch stream games and see if you can get them interested in your game there's a whole lot of <laughs> a whole lot of stuff to it to try and do it on your own but it just depends where you're at and obviously some people I, I know some people um solo developers mainly solo developers who are programmers more specifically who um, are able to do programming as like a full-time job and they've been putting money aside so that they can fund their project themselves 
and then they will go out and grab freelancers to you know either do this little bit of art here do that little bit of art there so there's lots of ways of doing it and i think that's why i don't really want to call it the bottom end of the market but like when you're a solo dev or an indie uh, or a hobbyist even all of these a lot of these games do end up getting out there but a lot of them get out of there from running under the steam of just the people as opposed to like from this grant or this money pot here and, and and what about distribution? Because it struck again those the routes to market will be dominated by the big players, as is so often the case in so many spaces. The world has become, you know, we've we've we're all afforded as a consequence of technology far greater accessibility or access generally than ever we were. But it's still a challenge to get to get a game out. How does that happen? I well, these days the bar for entry in terms of getting your products out there is on the floor, really. A hobbyist can uh, create a game and get it up on the apps on the Apple App Store or the uh, Google Play Store. And there's uh, websites like Steam um, and the Epic Store, where literally, as long as you've made a game, the quality doesn't really so much matter because the platforms don't really care. All they care about is that. Well, they, I mean, they care to a certain extent, right? They they do some basic testing, but most of that's automated. So yeah, you getting it out there is fairly easy. The hard part is making something good or making something ex- exceptional and the marketing, like having people even know that your game exists. The the first game that we created for mobile, it just and part of that is now that like it's it's out there and I'm I'm happy with it being out there, but I'm not pushing it in any way shape or form because it was it was like my first little foray into it's like when I was doing sketchwork back in the day, I wouldn't go around showing everyone my sketchbook and being like, well, in some cases I would. <laughs> but in most cases, you don't just go, oh, hey, look at the, these 10,000 sketches I did because they're sketches. You normally go, look at this amazing canvas and you should buy this canvas. So I kind of feel like, although um, I learned a lot about the process getting that game out there, yeah, the, the focus for me wasn't to have it make money at the time. With a bit of hindsight, what would you have done differently? so many things (laughs) um with hindsight i would have listened to all of the advice that is out there (laughs) there is so much advice that i ignored there's don't try making something massive straight first away which which is what we tried to do straight off the bat we were trying to make a console game just me and uh at the time me and peter were just trying to make i say just trying to make we're trying to make a massive console game i had fully designed this game with uh something in excess of 20 levels like really huge open area 3d like levels fortunately i had spent a year making all of the assets for it but that's by the wayside we still ended up after six months burning out because it was just too big for two people and we were suffering really heavily from something called feature creep which is where you have more ideas along the way and you just let them creep in instead of being like no no no, let's just stick to the core idea and so yeah we ignored that uh, and then when I when it came to me feeling like, okay, we'll take a break from that and we'll make a mobile game because mobile games are simpler and smaller. It's not true, particularly. <laughs> uh, it can be. Um, but we still spent, I, I thought it was going to take us two weeks to make that mobile game. It still took us four months, which is far quicker than the console game would have taken us. Console game between the two of us could have taken us 10 years easily. But yeah, I even then I should have scaled it back a bit. We still suffered from feature creep because I didn't have a clear idea of, exactly what i wanted the game to be and i was letting every new whim be like a whole new thing so it ended up being like 
five mini games in one, which in which in some cases could have been a fun thing, right? <laughs> you download a game and it's five mini games, hooray! But they were just connected in such a weird way that it was awkward. I mean, it's still out there. Like I said, I didn't, I haven't torn it down because it still is a fun game to play. When I played it, um, initially I was the best person at playing it, which is always the way. But other people played it and they loved it, and they and and but I would watch them enjoying it and be like cringing. <laughs> Um, we didn't do any marketing. We didn't do any. Um, we didn't plan out the monetization. We put in adverts as a kind of last minute thought, really. And we had it so that um, an advert plays after you die. Well, no, an advert doesn't even play. You have the option to play an advert when you die because it's an endless runner. So you can either watch an advert and continue running, or you can not do that and just start again. And it made no difference to you whether you started again or not because it's an endless runner. So, you, like, every time you died, your progress was saved. Like, you got to cash out, your money was saved and stuff. It wasn't, like, a big deal. So that would have been different. <laughs> um, I probably wouldn't have tried to do everything myself. Um, so it was just me and Peter. Peter is, like, a pure programmer. It will, is happy to do anything programming, So which left me doing everything else. But, again, you know, that... That led me to a situation where I understood everything from the animation to well, every literally every every other aspect of releasing that game, which is how I was able to realize that do you know what now that I get it, I just need to spend a bit more time and then I can do it properly. Has has your career in the in the gaming industry has it been what you imagined it was going to be from the outset? In some cases, it's been harder than I would have imagined. But in other cases, it's been so much more wonderful than I could have imagined. And I think a large part of that is that I enjoyed the networking side of it so much. Going out and uh, meeting other people who are passionate about game development. And just, yeah, so like every month, at the, at the end of every month, we I went to this meetup and was always meeting other game developers who were working on whatever little game they were working on. Half the time, being so jealous about the amazing game that they were working on, offering my services, and just be like, I will help you do whatever you want on this game. This looks amazing. And in, in a lot of cases, I end up helping out like quite a lot of people, but I've never really, on, on a lot of them, I didn't do enough where I was like, look, put my name in the credits. <laughs> I was just like so happy to have been involved and to have learned whatever it was that I learned. And yeah, I've, I've made a, a lot of really great friends in that space. So that's like one of the things that has been the biggest surprise with jumping into game development. Because especially within the indie space, everyone is so like friendly and helpful and open. They'll all tell you about the horror stories or like the best bits. There's there's still a little bit of fear, I would say, when it comes to people who are setting up their own studios uh, or people who are going it alone. In that, if there is this like little golden nugget of information that they feel is the thing that helped them out or help them to have the, su the success that they had, then they kind of keep that bit to themselves, which I guess makes sense. But it's it's kind of part of this, like, the, the fear for them is that if they share everything, then you're creating another competitor. Whereas the reality is that there's so much space within this industry and every single game is so different that you're, ne you're never creating a, a direct competitor. If you help out someone else, nine times out of ten, they're going to help you back. And it's just... One of the wonderful things about the whole industry, really. How, how has the industry changed during your time? I, I definitely caught the beginning of the wave of like the, like I say, this bar for entry lowering. 
it still seemed quite technically difficult to do when I first got in. And maybe some of that is that, you know, I, I got a better understanding of it. And so now I'm like, oh, it's so easy to get in. It's unbelievable. But I definitely don't feel like it was as easy as it is now. There's definitely more tools available now. I think when I when I had just got in uh, and all of these uh, new tools that were being created were coming in, I think that's when people realized that like there was this big space for it and there is this huge need for all of these tools. There's so many different like level makers and like game design tools. There's now a sea of like open source software, things that compete with like Adobe software, things that compete like Blender competes uh, against the the big game engines like Unity and Unreal. But even they, like when I first started out, I'm pretty sure there was an entirely paid structure. But Unity, you can now like download for free and get going like instantly. You can make a game for free and they've even lowered their uh, payment cap. So you don't pay a Unity a penny unless your game makes a certain amount of money. So it's definitely got a lot easier for game developers. It's kind of hard to say how good a thing that is, but I, I generally think it's, uh, it's a pretty cool thing. In terms of what excites you about the industry, I guess in specifically what innovations excite you about the industry, how would you describe that? I know what excites me about the thing as a whole, like being able to, uh, being able to take this idea that I had, uh, this massive game console idea, which is the kind of thing like when, you know, when you're young and you're playing computer games and you're like, oh, it'd be really cool if they did this or if they did that and you have your own ideas, but you don't think that that's ever going to become a thing. And for me, I've always wanted to be able to express myself in creative ways. So this is just the best way for me to do that. Like I can, I can paint a canvas and it will, it could elicit certain feelings and emotions in people, but it doesn't have that interactivity that you get from a, from games, right? You can play a game and the person who crafted that game can literally, like if it's a horror game, can send off all of those uh, signals within you and shake all of those nightmares <laughs> within you. Or if it's like a super happy chill game, you can sit back and relax and lose hours in just like a gorgeous game and not even feel it because someone has managed to make it so well. That's the, the stuff that I love about it is the, the creative outlet and seeing how different people manage to do that. Where'd you get your inspiration from? Ooh, years and years and years of dark comedy, movie, TV series, <laughs> I think. Do, do you game yourself? Not so much these days, which actually is kind of, it's almost kind of taboo to say as a game developer. <laughs> like you are supposed to play as a lot of games and understand the market and stuff. But I, I think that works to some extent. Like you do need, especially if you are making a specific type of game, like you definitely want to have played similar games before. So I have grown up playing similar games. And I think the other problem is there's so many games coming out on such a frequent basis. Like, how would I even keep up? Where would I even find the time to play all the games that come out? You might have heard of Humble Bundle, which bundles together like a whole host of indie games and normally at discount prices. And I bought one during the pandemic, during the beginning of the pandemic. There was one, I think it had something like a thousand games on it. Um, a thousand indie games or close to a thousand indie games. And I down, I downloaded that and I've played three because, <laughs> and I've lovingly played those three games, but yeah, I don't, I just don't have the time to get through all of them. So how, how do you, how do you, can you stay on top of, or at least keep abreast of developments that are going on in the space that are going to be critical to your, your ongoing success? How do you, how do you stay on top of it? 
for the most part for me now and it's still something that I enjoy doing to be honest it's not it's not a particular pain point but um, I watch other people play games that I want to play especially if I'm like so I so I can work at my computer doing whatever the hell I want and have uh, up in the corner like a YouTube video of whatever game I think is interesting and watch someone else play through it and normally you get some really good commentary from some some of those players as well especially like a really good Twitch influencer who's well known for giving their point of view on games so the work that I do at Game Dev London some of our Twitch streamers now do uh, are, are playing games like what was the one recently played Cyberpunk 2077 and he plays games through the eyes of a developer so he talks about you know oh that's really clever how they've done that they're leading you down this path so you feel like you've got freedom but actually you're quite restricted um so there's all of these little things that you can get from watching other people because I could I could literally spend hours playing games and trying to put it <laughs> put it apart. So you mentioned Game Dev London there. One of the questions that I was interested to understand was the inspiration behind Game Dev London first and foremost. So where did the idea? Well, tell us about Game Dev London first and foremost, and, and specifically where the idea had come from. So Game Dev London started out life as the Game Dev Lunch meetup that I used to attend, and at some point last year that it would have had its seventh year anniversary so it'd been going long before i think i i'm not entirely sure how long i would even i had even been going i think i was going for five years before anything changed with game dev lunch but uh essentially yeah so game dev lunch was a physical meetup for games developers every month um, i joined that and because i was there like every th- every thursday every month and i spoke to everyone i i basically operated as if it was my event I would talk to everyone. I would connect people. I'd be like, oh, you're doing this. You should go talk to this pe- this person. Um, and so the main organizer at the time, Jade, uh, she came up to me and said, uh, would you be interested in helping me like run this whole thing? So I became an, uh, an organizer. And then just before the pandemic hit, we had started doing the events in Samsung King's Cross venue in King's Cross, funny enough. And we were doing this thing called dinner devs and that was going really well. And uh, yeah, just as the pandemic hit, Samsung said to us, we're looking to showcase uh, the communities that work in us to do stuff in our space. Would we be interested in doing anything like that? And I had, I had had this plan to do a game development podcast for like three years already. So I was like, this is perfect. We can create a, a podcast and, we can give them that content for the website. And that's something that our community could then say that, that, that we're doing. And that kind of sparked this whole bigger thing for me. I, I didn't really have it fully formed, I guess, in the beginning. I just thought Game Dev Lunch should become Game Dev London. It, like That should be the new brand, Game Dev London. We'll do this podcast. We'll switch to doing online events because everyone was going to have to do that anyway with what was coming. And I just started figuring out as quickly as possible uh, and then we created a Discord uh, community that became populated fairly quickly. Uh, luckily, because we were starting out having used meetup.com, we had nearly 2,000 members registered on our on our meetup.com. So it was kind of a, a fairly easy case for us to just be like, hey, guys, we're now doing this over here. Um, come and join us over here. And I don't, I don't, we didn't really get that many people come over from that, actually. And I guess because it's, you know, something that's, Contactless had been growing for seven years, so there probably were a lot of dead accounts now at this point. So that happened in that kind of started to happen in April last year, 
And then it just quickly grew from there, really. Uh, we continued doing regular monthly events, but we did them online in the dis- in the Discord. So we still do the Game Dev Lunch in the Discord. We then started doing an audio meetup and we started doing game jams. So we did a, a summer, winter game jam. And then we ended up hosting a Global Game Jam in January this year. We had the biggest uh, site in the UK, which is pretty exciting for some for like a completely new entity. Uh, but the whole ethos behind it really is that um, because I had found this struggle to kind of find my feet initially, I thought we can definitely make that easier for people. So that's what we do. Uh, it's it's a community for games developers, whether you're a hobbyist or you're in indie or AAA, whatever, wherever you are in your career, you can come and join Game Dev London and we will talk to each other, help each other, uh, share experiences. Um, people form their own teams within the Discord, especially when it comes to the game jams, which is like the best experience you can have for making a game in a really short period of time. You can just go, hey guys, I need a team. Four other people go like, yeah, I need a team too. And all of a sudden you've got this mini mini studio essentially. And some people do continue to make their games after the game jam and have certain different levels of success. So for any independent uh, game developers out there or indeed people that might have family members who are considering pursuing a career in game development it, it, where can they find you how can they go and find out more information how, how can they participate get involved first and foremost you can just visit gamedev.london um over here <laughs> and yeah uh if, all, all the links to everything that we do is there we obviously i say obviously we have a twitter i feel like these days it's obvious that you should have a twitter <laughs> uh we have a facebook group we exist on LinkedIn. We exist, yeah, everywhere that you would expect something to exist online. Now we tend to exist. And the podcast itself available on, on in the usual places. You're on episode, am I right? 48 now, I think. Yeah, uh, I think I we're about read. to drop episode 48. Um, yeah, podcast uh, is on every podcast app that I'm aware of. Uh, we were even recently, we were added to a podcast uh, entity that I didn't know existed because it all exists on an RSS feed. But yeah, that's uh, the Game of London podcast. That's you could probably quite easily search that. But again, you just visit gamedev.london, all the links are there. And and what have you enjoyed about the podcast experience? In the early days, because we've done an episode every Monday, it was meeting and being able to speak to whoever I wanted to within the industry. I could literally just, you know, have my pick of celebrity guest, I guess. <laughs> I just be like, hey, would you like to be on the podcast? Um, and they'd be like, yeah, yeah, sure, that sounds cool. And then I get to speak to them and ask them questions that maybe I wanted that I would have wanted to ask them had I've met them one to one in a uh, an event or whatever. Um, so it, you kind of get yeah exclusive access almost. That was definitely one of the best things. But we've kind of switched format these days, not by much. Like we still do have special guests, but we now prefer uh, we because there's ten hosts, so we can just like talk amongst ourselves. So we tend to pair up for an episode and uh, talk about topics that interest us the most, or even uh, talk about things that are topically happening right now within the industry so yeah i just enjoy being able to garner information as well as share information i guess so so what does the uh what does the future look like for sat pop power and and indeed for for stuart deville in in independent game development good question uh raging success (laughs) hope well so we're at zap pop power we're close to having our demo together it's been a long old, old road we've had uh, quite a few pivots uh, we were originally the plan was to make a 3d platforming rpg but i wanted to scale down the length of time so that was looking like it was going to be a five or six year project 
And if things went wrong, you know, that, that could easily uh, expand out. Um, so we were able to pivot to do something a little bit simpler based on a, a previous prototype. So, yeah, we're instead of having the five-year uh, thing, we've now only been doing like a year and a half and we're close to demo. And then once the demo is out there, we'll probably do an early access release. And then, yeah, hopefully that's a, a big success. For me personally. <laughs> Fantastic. I wish you well. I'm sure it will be. And and what about away from uh, away from work? It sounds as though that you, you've got a very busy schedule with uh, with businesses that you're running, podcasts you're hosting, meetups that you're engaged in. Do you still uh, illustrate? Do you still draw? Do you still create? Do you still have that sketch pad? That what do you? Do? I guess what do you do to unwind and get away from the screen? That's really hard. <laughs> I tend I like I still play games to unwind. Guilty pleasure of mine is having Clash Royale on my on my phone, which is something that a game developer probably shouldn't have on his phone. I do still uh, sketch stuff. So this empty picture frame behind me, there's a canvas waiting for me to finish sorting out that blank space. So I still do do stuff like that. But I'm now a father of two. So that takes up a lot of my time. I kind of prefer to have some family time as opposed to being 100% creative 100% of the time, (laughs) which is what would have been my preference pre-children. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's a, a full-time job in itself, two full-time jobs in itself and yeah. that, you've, uh, that you've got there. So in terms of, of um, as what drives you now, I guess, you know, I've, I've, uh, father myself, it, it changes your perspective. Uh, it certainly provides a degree of impetus when mm. it's not just the one or two mouths that you're feeding it's for or however many it may be. But in yeah. your respect, what, what is it that drives you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? It definitely has become a driver, if I'm honest. Like before... It was all about, you know, I'm going to be a success for me. But now there's kind of like this bigger picture that like, I want my boys to grow up having me as a role model, seeing that, you know, there is this, if you want your dreams, then you just work hard and you pursue them. And hopefully they will grow up seeing that, you know, that that is what I was doing, that I was striving to not only meet my dreams, but also provide them with as best a quality of life as I, as I can. So that's definitely one of the, like the core drivers. I still have that little boy in me that wants to be the best and wants to you know continue to reach for success and and are either of them showing creative talents at at, at a young age are they showing any sense of of some of the the traits that you would evidence at a similar age yeah one of them is about to turn three and the other one is uh about to turn two months so it's too early to tell with that one (laughs) yeah but the one who's nearly three yeah he definitely I wouldn't say he definitely has it there, but, you know, I can sit him down with paper and pencils and um, he's very quickly uh, learned how to draw circles, which seems like a, like for an adult, you'd be like, well, of course you can draw a circle, but actually, <laughs> but actually the, the motor skills involved in doing like a decent circle is, it tends to be, if, you, if you've got a good art teacher, they'll tell you it's in the elbow, it's not in the wrist. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. that and when it comes to paint, he loves getting his, well, he doesn't like getting his hands dirty, actually. He likes having clean hands, which is something I never had. <laughs> but he loves to, like, yeah, make his mark. And he's always like, Daddy, look, look, Daddy, look. So he's definitely got it. He's got some part of it anyway. I think it would be, um, he's very fortunate to have in his father, I'm sure, based on your own experiences, at least if he starts to to start to consider a career, who knows what the future holds, but some sort mm-hmm. of creative career, the encouragement that you might give based on your own experience of perhaps not being as encouraged as 
as arguably would have been great at a, at a similar age. I think it's um, at least he knows he's going to get that kind of encouragement. So, so what does what does success mean to you, Stuart? I don't know what success means to me right now because some days I feel like uh, you know I I am experiencing some level of success. Game Dev London is doing really well. We went from having like zero members to nearly nine hundred members in the Discord. So that kind of feels like a certain level, a uh, certain level of a success. Um, the events go really well. We're having talks with like different partners and uh, getting different sponsorships involved in that. So that feels really good. The game studio, everyone within my that like the team seems very happy. In fact, that's the case with both Game to London and Zap. Both teams seem very happy and they all work together really nicely. So I feel like I've managed to pull together these really these great teams of people. And, you know, the success of your business can live and die on your people. So if everyone's having a good time and they're all enjoying themselves, then I kind of feel like success on any extended level is kind of inevitable. But outside of that, I guess, um, I don't even I don't even see myself as one of those retirement people. <laughs> but I imagine being able to sit back and enjoy the fruits of what I've done would be nice at some point, potentially sitting on a beach and, and chilling out, not even with alcoholic beverage so much as just you know <laughs> being able to be like ah this is the calm this is this is the bit this is why i work so hard so that i can relax and yeah and enjoy some time but again i don't know if i'll get to that point i'll probably still be like oh i've had another idea <laughs> that needs to happen now i dare say if you uh, if you were lying on the uh, on the proverbial sun lounger that they'll uh, that in itself may provide some creative spark and <laughs> Before you know it, you'll be off on another path. What, what would you, what would you, in terms of advice that you would impart for those that might be sat and considering, you know, w- with a big idea or wanting to to get into game development or that perhaps are struggling a little bit now but have some talent? What what advice would you give to them? Um, go easy on yourself. Have more confidence in yourself. I found those those two things were like. The things that I struggled with the most was always my the, the little critique in my own head, especially like when I was really young. I used to create art and the following day hate it and be like, this is awful. Like, but that's just, you know, you know that you can do better because you've just learned <laughs> from creating that piece of art. You've learned a whole load of stuff. So that obviously your next piece is going to be better. But that shouldn't have meant that I was like, what I did previously was rubbish. It should have just meant that I, what I probably should have done is gone, look at the progress I've made. So you can definitely be be kinder to yourself as you go. And don't be scared to just like dive in. I know that there's there's a lot of hesitation when it comes to like, well, how how do I do that? What do I do? Just just start doing it. Whether it's like learning the software that you need to learn. Um there's like I said, there's loads of but the, the bar to entry is really low. There's loads of uh, open source open source and free software out there. And there's lots of networks out there. Game of London is one, but there are others um, that you can connect with. There's other um, communities that you can connect with. There's other Facebook groups you can join to get tips and advice. I always offer myself as, you know, if people want to contact me on Twitter or whatever and be like, hey, Stuart, I, I heard about you and I, you know, that you give advice. What would you give me for advice? I've done quite a lot of that anyway. So, yeah, just um, be kind to yourself and try not to beat yourself up too much which ties very nicely into my next question which i suspect to agree you just answered what which was going to be what what advice might you give 21 year old you um but <laughs> I, it sounds as though from what you're saying that might be consistent with that 
fairly consistent. I probably would have said slow down. <laughs> Although I don't know. Um, it's, it's easy to say things like that, isn't it? To think that maybe if I'd have slowed down, I, I would have got further or made fewer mistakes. But maybe I would have just made different mistakes. Yeah, I was I was quite fortunate that I just had this drive behind me and nothing was going to stop me until I'd done the thing that I was going to do. Every creative project that I've ever wanted to do, I've, I've done. And whatever measure of success it had is what it was. You can only ever try your best. You know, you can never say, well, this is the thing that I'm definitely going to make. You, you can just try your best to do that. And once you've done it, you have to just let go and be like, well, that's it did it. It did as well as it did or whatever it is. But I still probably would have told myself to slow down would be the, the only one bit of advice, really. So in terms of where people can find you, what's your Twitter? Uh, at Stuart Deville. I'm pretty much at Stuart Deville everywhere. I'm, I'm pretty lucky with that one. <laughs> Got in there early. Um, yeah, there's no other at Stuart Deville that I'm aware of. So at Stuart Deville, Game Dev Podcast, they can find you. And, and every week, is that this weekly podcast? Is that right? It's come out. The Game Dev London Podcast every Monday. So the way it launches is at six o'clock every Monday. Uh, we release a 10 minute clip on YouTube. And so people can watch that 10 minute clip and then follow the link to the full episode. The full episode is at that, by that point is live on every podcast app out there. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast. <laughs> There's so many <laughs> out there, but yeah, whichever one it is, um, Game of London podcast, fairly easy to find, I think. Fantastic. Stuart, it's been a pleasure to uh, have you on as my guest. I'd really appreciated your time and insight. I think is the gaming industry is fascinating. It has clearly huge implications for you know, in terms of global reach, global opportunity, incredibly entrepreneurial, very creative, a really, really exciting and dynamic space uh, and uh, one that I'm sure in which you'll continue to thrive. I wish you well with all that you have going on uh, and uh, really appreciate your time and insight this afternoon. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.